Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed. And gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we stand. Father God, we thank you that you do indeed speak to us. And we pray that this morning we would be those who listen and who obey what you say to us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our faith and help us to understand your ways and purposes in this world more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you sit down, please uh, pick up your Bibles again and turn back to Luke chapter 5. Now, I remember uh, growing up being in uh, church, and one Sunday morning, the the minister was uh, doing a children's talk, and he asked um, everybody uh, this question. He said, what would you do if a stranger walked into church? Now, being the knowledgeable boy I was, uh, I knew the answer immediately, so I uh, stuck up my hand um, and got picked to give the answer, and so I gave the answer, pray to God that they go away. Um, (laughs) As a boy learning about stranger danger and the fact that I was in church, I thought I'd combined uh, the two things admirably. Um, Just to say, my view on welcoming people has changed uh, somewhat uh, since then. So if you're visiting, you're very welcome uh, here amongst us. Uh, 
You know, the children notoriously give funny answers, don't they, to questions. In a church setting, generally you can be relied upon a child to answer Jesus to whatever the question actually is. An Anglican minister was writing in The Guardian last year, and he started his article saying this. He said, one thing you learn pretty quickly taking primary school assemblies is that, according to the under fives, there is no question that cannot be appropriately answered with the word Jesus. Obviously, anything faintly religious must be answered in that way. But other questions too. What is the capital of France? What is the price of a loaf of bread? What's the name of your sister? Well, if children know the answer is Jesus, even in inappropriate situations. I wonder whether you've come across adults. So when you speak to them, all they talk about is Jesus. They do it all the time. At times when they do that, it can seem a little strange, can't it? They speak of Jesus seemingly at the expense of the realities of life. They speak of Jesus, but it doesn't feel like it quite connects with the world around us. The world which is so full of needs, and yet they talk about Jesus in a way which seems to skirt over those things. And now obviously we can speak about Jesus in that kind of way. And the way which speaks over the realities of life. And yet that's not the real Jesus. We'll see to this morning that Jesus does deal with reality. We'll see why it's so important that we do speak of Jesus. Why Jesus is so special. What we're going to see specifically is that Jesus has the power to meet mankind's deepest need. So we see that in Luke 5 where immediately we're introduced to two groups of people with two different attitudes to Jesus. You see the first in verse 17. One day as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. The Pharisees were a religious group who sought to be faithful to the law of Moses, desperate not to break the law. The teachers of the law helped him in that by creating a whole bank of laws around each Mosaic law so that you couldn't break the law. Well, they've heard of Jesus, obviously, and they want to come and hear what it's all about. Jesus has been creating a stir, and they now want to come and hear for themselves. And so they've come from all over the place to hear what Jesus says. It seems, as you read through, that they are a little sceptical of Jesus, They want to find out a little bit more about him, work out what he's about. And maybe that describes you here this morning. You have heard things of Jesus and you want to know a little bit more about him. You've got questions which are unanswered and so you're hoping to find some answers to them. And can I say that's great? It's great to have questions and to seek to answer those questions. And so on the one hand, you've got the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as one group. On the other hand, there is the paralyzed man and his friends. We read about those in verses 18 and 19. And they are determined to get to Jesus. They obviously have heard of Jesus as well. And yet they're not wanting just to find out a little bit more. They are determined to get their friend before Jesus. It's so determined, we read, that they go onto the roof to dig the hole to get Jesus right down in front of Jesus. It's quite remarkable, really, when you think about the determination and the lengths which they go to to get their friend to Jesus. It's so sure are they that Jesus holds the key to their situation, they're not put off by any difficulty, convinced that Jesus can meet their friend's needs. 
And it's the action of these friends which leads to Jesus' statement in verse 20. In verse 20 will become the focus of the rest of this little incident. And what we see is quite a shocking statement for many people there. You see it in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now many of us here will have read this passage before, we will have read these words before, but don't miss the shock of these words. Jesus says to this paralyzed man before him, friend, your sins are forgiven. To the man whose whole life has been defined by the fact of his illness, Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. You know, I used to be a physio and I used to work with people who'd had strokes or brain injuries. And I can remember two men in particular You would have described them both as hard men, grafters, strong men. And yet their stroke drew them to tears again and again. To them their life was destroyed. They couldn't work. They couldn't walk. Feeding themselves was increasingly hard and dressing was impossible. They even needed help to go to the toilet. And for this man here, this paralyzed man, the situation would have been even worse There would have been no health care, nobody to help him in that way. There would have been no social care. He would have relied on others for everything which he needed and required. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. It really isn't what you expect, is it? And as readers of this little incident, it's even odder when we see what was said in verse 17. Did you notice that at the end of verse 17 where it says this? And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. And Luke here is drawing our attention to something that we've seen all the way through Luke. That Jesus has the power of the Lord. We saw at his baptism, the spirit of the Lord descends on him and marks Jesus out as one who is special, proclaims him to be God's son. We hear Jesus saying that the spirit of the Lord is upon him in, verse, in chapter 4. And then we've seen Jesus doing amazing things, healing people. And Luke reminds us of that here. And so as readers, we're expecting Jesus to heal someone who's sick. And here, right in front of him, is that sick person. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It really isn't what we expect to see here. But the point is really clear, I think. As this man came in front of Jesus, Jesus thought he was healing his sickness. Jesus thought he was dealing with this man's major sickness. Jesus thought actually the man's major sickness wasn't his legs, but his sin. And to be clear about that, look at a few verses further on in verses 31 and 32. Jesus responds to the Pharisees after another incident and he says this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see the connection Jesus is making. Jesus speaks of the sick needing a doctor and comparing his ministry to that, saying that he's come to call sinners to repentance. You see, making an analogy between sickness and sin Friend, your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. He is healing this man of his most serious sickness. A man who is in desperate need with the biggest sickness is of his sin. In the biggest sickness that we all have here this morning is our sin. 
a sin which needs to be dealt with. We have that need, our friends have that need, the need to be met by God, to have our sins forgiven. It's not to say that people don't have other needs, physical and material needs which we can care for and look after them in, but their spiritual need is the greatest need they have. You see, I wonder when you look upon your friends, what do you think their biggest need is? Do you think it's for education or for health care or for world peace? You see, as we look at our friends, we should be seeing that their biggest need is their sinfulness that Jesus can meet. So Jesus sees this man and proclaims to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. I think one of our problems in not seeing how much of a problem this is is the problem of the camera. Do I turn my television on and watch the the 10 o'clock news and I see images of Syrian refugees or I see lives destroyed by poverty? I listen to people explain how they've been affected by crime and terrorism. I see the devastation caused by war. I see all manner of inhumanity as I turn the TV on and my heart is deeply moved by it. I'm sure your heart is as well, as you see the suffering and injustice that people face. You see, the problem is, though, that there's no TV camera which can broadcast the state of our hearts. Nothing can show what's like inside of us. And if there was, then again, we would be moved by that to see that we must help people deal with that great need. You see, there's no camera that can do that. And yet, the Bible is almost the the way in which we can see what we are truly like. It it shows us what God's perspective on us is. It shows us that we are all people who are sinful before a holy God. It shows us that we rebel against God. And as it says that, surely we recognize something of that. And we've all said and done things which we are ashamed of. You know, there's things which we've said and done which actually surprise us. We say, I didn't think I could do that. You see, Jesus comes and identifies our greatest need. And we see him identifying that as he heals this man of his greatest need, of his sinfulness. The sickness which was this man's gravest need at that time. But as we see Jesus dealing with this man's greatest need, the question still does remain, can Jesus actually meet this greatest need? You see, the question, what Jesus says, it raises all sorts of questions in the skeptics' minds, and they jump in, they're critical of Jesus, actually, at this point, and they accuse him of blasphemy in their hearts. It's funny, it's interesting that the crime for which Jesus will eventually be crucified was that they say he was blaspheming. And here they are accusing him of that here. Look what they say in verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's interesting, isn't it, actually, that they don't dispute that the sin is the greatest need. Now, they didn't need convincing like we do do that sin was a greatest need. They were happy to think that sin was a great issue. What they're scathing about is whether Jesus has the authority to say that. You see, they're actually accusing Jesus of blasphemy because they think he shouldn't have said it. 
Uh, For them to say such a thing would be to slight the name of God and that would be a terrible thing to do. Uh, They think that Jesus cannot do it because it's God's prerogative alone to forgive sin. Uh, So for them, Jesus here is spouting hot air. And it is a great question to be clear about, isn't it? Does Jesus have the power to do this? You see, if sin is our greatest need, does Jesus have the authority to forgive it? We need to be clear about the answer to this. And in actual fact, I think this is the biggest thing that this section which wants to teach us. It wants, us to, it wants to convince us that Jesus does have the ability to forgive sins. Mankind's biggest need is to have their sin forgiven. But if we say Jesus can heal it, and he can't, then that's the worst possible deceit. It would be akin to a a false doctor claiming to be able to heal somebody of their sickness and taking the money when they have got no ability to do that. When we hear of those kind of stories, we are rightly angry at them. And if Jesus was saying he could do something which he can't do, then it would be a terribly wicked thing to do. And you can see the point of conflict he's having with the Pharisees. They think Jesus is doing something which he can't do. He's saying something which he can't do. By contrast, the friends have a faith in Jesus. It might not be a fully formed faith, but faith nonetheless. Are they right to have that faith in Jesus? Well, that's what the rest of the incident will deal with and show us. And it will show us that Jesus does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. You look how the section answers the question. Firstly, remember what we've been reminded of already in verse 17. And the power of the Lord was with, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Now the significance is this. The Pharisees are literally asking whether Jesus has the power to forgive sins. They ask who has the power to forgive sins except God alone. Well, Jesus has the power of the Lord upon him. Here is one who is divine, no ordinary man, one who has the power to forgive sins. But secondly, we see why we should trust Jesus' ability. He proves his ability. You look at the options he gives the Pharisees from verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking. We're not told what the Pharisees thought of that point, that he knew what they were thinking. And then he asks them, verse 22, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Well, in one sense, it's not easy to say either of them. Both things are only things which God could do. Not possible for a man to pronounce forgiveness of sins before God to another man. It's not possible for me to say to somebody, get up and walk, and for them to do it. Both of them, in one sense, are impossible. And so in one sense, neither thing is easy to say. But you see, in another sense, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because when I say that to somebody, you can't prove it. If I was to stand at the end of one of my stroke patient's bed and say your sins are forgiven, then nobody else standing around would know whether it really happened or not. You couldn't see whether it happened. But if I stood at the end of that bed on the ward round with the the doctors and nurses there and the family all standing round and said to uh, those men, you can get up and walk now and go home. It would be very apparent very quickly whether I had the power or the ability to do that. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 24. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And that's exactly what the man did. You see, Jesus proves his ability to forgive sins by healing this man. It's immediately clear that Jesus' words have power. They could see the man healed of his disability. And now they could see that also Jesus' words had power to forgive sins. You know, if you like, Jesus is starting to turn the table on the skeptics. They don't think that Jesus can do what he says. They think he is blaspheming in saying those things. And yet Jesus here is proving that he has the ability to do what they thought he couldn't do. He speaks a word and heals the man. He did have the power to speak the word and forgive the man. And so what are the skeptics going to make of him now? In many ways, you could say Luke records his careful history to ask us the same question. And what are you going to make of Jesus now? Here is the one who has power to forgive your greatest need. You'll demonstrate more and more of that ability and power as the gospel goes on. Ultimately, he will show himself paying for those sins as he dies on the cross. You know, about 18 months ago, it was um, great on a Sunday evening here to be able to commission a group of people who were joining with a group from Christ Church Central to plant a church in Walkley. You might have been here. On that night, as they were being interviewed, uh, Pete Jackson, who was going to be the pastor of the, the new church, asked, them a quest, asked the whole group a question, a question which was going to be uh, fundamental to who they were as a church. This was the question he asked. He said, what does Walkley need? To which the group of people replied, Walkley needs Jesus. That could seem a bit cheesy, can't it, sometimes? Uh, but it's true. Uh, the greatest need that people in Walkley have is to see Jesus. The greatest need that people in Fullwood have is to see Jesus because in Jesus is one who can meet their greatest need. You see, everyone needs Jesus because everyone's need is the same. They need to have their sins forgiven. Well, we believe it. Now, we should be convinced by the passage that the greatest need can be met by Jesus, but will we believe it? You know, Jesus calls this man friend, welcomes him home, demonstrates his ability to forgive his sin. And so will we bring our friends to Jesus to hear the same words? Will we love our friends like the the friends of the paralytic man loved him? Will we be desperate to bring our friends to Jesus? Will we join with what God is doing in the world through Jesus? as he offers that forgiveness, as he offers that welcome home, as he calls us friend. And it's really easy, isn't it, to forget what people's greatest need is. I've been immensely thankful for this passage this week. It's done me good. And you know, when I stopped being a physio and I went to Bible college, it was because I was convinced of the truth of this gospel word, that people's in need was their sinfulness. That people could have that need met in Jesus. And I was convinced of that. And I wanted to shape my life around that. And I wanted to help other Christians to see that. And to shape their life around that. And to show other people it. But my problem is I can keep forgetting it. I keep forgetting that this is what the most important thing is. And I need to be reminded again and again. I think it's easy to forget because I'm constantly told another message. 
I see so many other real needs. I turn the TV on and I'm told that the economic needs are the biggest issue that this country is facing. I've listened to interviews from the World Economic Forum which have the strapline in the back committed to improving the state of the world. I hear of the Syrian peace talks and there's so many other needs I keep hearing about. And I don't mishear me, I'm not saying that those needs are not important, they definitely are. But the thing that I never hear when I turn the news on is that mankind's biggest need is their sinfulness. That they need forgiveness from their sins. There's so many good things to do, so many needs, but their biggest need is to have their sins forgiven. And that is what the Lord Jesus offers. I need to remember that in my family, that my children's greatest need is to be shown that they uh, have a sin which needs to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. And that's what he offers and wants to do for them. And yet I get so caught up in helping them enjoy life, to do well at school, uh, to have their play dates, to learn their instruments well, uh, to go swimming with them and so many different things that I can forget that I need to be telling them this. You see, it's not that those other things are unimportant for my children. It's just that their greatest need is to hear that they have sin which can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus and so to keep trusting in him. The best thing I can do for my children is to show them Jesus. I need to keep asking myself whether I'll believe that and so do it. And can I ask you here today, have you seen your greatest need? Are you someone who has seen that your sin is your greatest need? And do you see that in the Lord Jesus there's someone who can forgive it? And who can deal with it and who has the authority and the power to do that? Maybe you know that you have sinned, but you feel that God could never forgive that. Well, in the Lord Jesus is one who offers the hand of friendship and says, I am able to do that. I am willing to do that. But will you believe it? You know, when the church plant went to Walkley last year, they were asked another question. And the second question was, what do I need? And the answer to that was equally simple, I need Jesus. It's good to remind ourselves, isn't it? We need Jesus because in him is the one who can meet our biggest need. Well, as I close, look how the man responds to what Jesus does in verse 25. Immediately he stood up in front of them took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. And you see the reaction he had. He went home praising God. In the very next verse, we see that everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And throughout Luke, and as you go into Acts, you see the same pattern. People encounter the message of the Lord's favor. They see the Lord working in their lives and they go home praising God. They have a response of a joy and thankfulness and praise to God for all that he has done. It's no wonder, is it? As we see our greatest need being met by Jesus to respond with praise and thankfulness is just natural. And when we see that we can be forgiven and welcomed home as a friend, then it fills our hearts with joy and thankfulness, doesn't it? And when we see that we are more sinful than we ever realized, yet more loved than we could ever imagine, it fills our hearts with joy and praise to God. You see, it's not surprising, is it, as you get to the end of the incident, that that's what the man does, and that's what the people do as well. They go home praising God. 
Well, let's pray now and let's uh, praise our God in prayer. And then also we will uh, sing of the wonder of the gospel in our final hymn as well. But let's pray now. Father God, we are so thankful that you meet our greatest need. We recognize that we are all people who have sinned before you and are in need. And we thank you that you deal with our problem. That you came in the Lord Jesus and that you have dealt with our problem of sin. We praise you that Jesus does indeed have the ability to forgive our sins. We praise you that Jesus did indeed die on the cross to pay for our sins. And Father, we are so thankful that now we can be freed from those. That we can be welcomed back home. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.